0: Welcome to the latest of these international conversations about the 11th century, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Ellen Arnold, Associate Professor of pre-modern Environmental History at the University of Stavanger. Ellen has written books, well, written widely actually, on environmental history, a book on the Ardennes, uh, Rivers and Gregory of Tours. Welcome, Ellen, to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you so much for including me, Charles.
0: (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about somebody who listeners may not have heard of, actually, or or maybe they have, uh, Lambert of Saint-Omer, and a book he wrote called The Liber Floridus. So I I wondered, Ellen, can we just start off by saying who was Lambert and and what was his his Liber Floridus?
1: Well, it's interesting because it's very hard to answer that first question. Like so many uh, medieval writings, the Liber Floridus, um, contains very little information about authorship. We know about Lambert only from his own book. Uh, Lambert was a canon at the House of St. Mary's at Saint-Omer, which is near the monastery of Saint-Bartain, but he was not connected to that monastery. We know his name and we know a little bit about his family background from a genealogical table that he put in to the back of his book, showing his his ancestry, and also from a potentially self-portrait that he drew of himself in the book as well. It's an interesting example of knowing more about the person from what they write than from biographical details. And that, I'll talk a bit more about that in a few minutes. But we basically know about him because of his writing of the Liber Florus, which is one of the very early comprehensive encyclopedias of human knowledge post Isidore of Seville. And it's a just gargantuan piece of assemblage of natural, historical, religious, and scientific knowledge all in one place by a single author. What's remarkable is that we appear to also have his autograph manuscript, the one that he himself labored over for multiple decades at this intersection of the 11th and 12th centuries when so much of the world was changing and we get this encyclopedia of everything that people know from the pen of one person and the mind of one person
0: so this is kind of fascinating is it was it kind of a kind of personal project for him i mean do we know why he writes it or just got a guess i guess from from the content again
1: it does appear to have been a very personal project it took him basically his entire adult life. We suspect, based on the extensive codicological and paleographical work that many um, scholars, but especially Albert de Rolez have done, that it was finished around 1120 or 1121. But what's kind of fascinating is you can actually see his handwriting change over time. And you can see, and this is what's so amazing about the work that the paleographers and codicologists have put into the manuscript, you can actually see him rearranging and rewriting and erasing and writing over. And it does appear to have been his own personal project.
0: So like a kind of massive scrapbook or a bit bit more than that.
1: Yes. Yes. You know, like... um, They're they're not called scrapbooks. What are they? Chapbooks? Yeah, chapbooks. Yes, where he's taking down because it appears that he had access at various times to a whole bunch of different books, but not permanent access. And so it can also be a little like other books of flowers, which is what the Liber Florilegium is. It's a little book of flowers, Mm. that it's the Parts of things that he read that he found worth remembering and keeping to hand. And so while he's creating a giant reference book, it's not entirely clear whether he meant, it for, meant for it to be referenced by anyone except himself and his students. That it was, in fact, a compilation of the important bits of the things that he read that he wanted to be able to reread and consult and lay hand to.
0: One of the things we might come back to is it's heavily illustrated, right? And I mean, he, yes. he, he he did all those drawings himself or?
1: Yes, that is the best guess. There's still some argument about all of this, of course, since it's uh, such a remarkable one of a kind manuscript and since it's not connected to a. Uh, a clear biography. it's even more tricky to figure him out than um, I was listening to the other podcast than Monica Green's um, attempt to kind of and other scholars attempt to figure out who Constantine the African was. He's at least mentioned by other people. Lambert's not. His manuscript is copied by other people, but he doesn't appear in other documents. but we believe that he did do his own illustrations. And the illustrations are so compelling that they're such a part. They're not just additions to the manuscript. They are part of the way he explains the content and the world. He uses he has a combination of maps and astronomical tables and Animals in a bestiary and medicinal plants and the the ones that I love, illustrations of the earthly paradise and the Noachic flood and the city of Jerusalem that are all visually interconnected to one another to make an argument about God's intervention in the world over time. And the images become part of this, this story that Lambert is telling about how people got to the 1100s and what might be coming next. You know, so how, how people got to the crazy events of the 11th century that Lambert lived through, the Crusades, the, Cong- the Norman Conquest, the um, radical sort of transformation of what the world was.
0: So this is kind of a story he tells through his pictures as much as through his text and, and both Absolutely. in combination. Okay. So, Absolutely. You're, you're, you are, a amongst many things, but a, a, an, an environmental historian. and You've worked a lot of monks as well, but, but you're interested in the environment. I mean, what is it? Uh, yeah, what's the connection here between Lambert and the environment? What does Lambert's book tell us about his view, I guess, of, of nature?
1: Well, this is, and this gets back to the fact that we don't know anything about Lambert, really is what I find very exciting about this book is because it is such a personal compilation of the bits and pieces of other people's scholarship that he found interesting. I feel like this gives us a way to step into what was important to Lambert, a canon living in Flanders, living in St. Omer, in At this turn of this very pivotal century, what he chose to copy shows us what he was reading, shows us what he was interested in, a bit like what Ginsberg does with Minocchio in The Cheese and the Worms, that by looking at what he chooses to give attention to, we can start to reconstruct his mental world. And then using the skills of environmental historians and material culture scholars, we can start to actually reconstruct the world he actually lived in. And by putting those pieces together, what were rivers like? What would the river, uh, the river Ah, that he lives on, what would that river have been like in the 11th century? What would the riverscape have looked like? What would Saint-Omer have looked like? And then we look at the ways that he incorporates imaginary rivers and the biblical rivers of paradise and a section building on Bede and Nennius of the wonders of Britain and his attention to miraculous waters and fountains and springs, that we can start to, more than is possible with a lot of other moments in medieval history, we can start to, I think, I hope, connect the moment he is living in with the way that he connects to abstract ideas of nature and environment and that putting those together can help us see the complicated ways that nature and the environment were things that people didn't just physically experience but that they mentally and emotionally and intellectually experienced and often that they religiously experienced.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I know you're interested in, in water right? yeah. and I guess, uh, and it sounds like there's a lot of water in his book too. You mentioned no, that was fun, I guess, but like all those sorts of issues and rivers they, they come into. Mm-hmm. And is yes. that this is on the illustrations, but also I guess the, in the choice of texts he uses alongside the illustration.
1: Yes. Yeah. And who he chooses to read and copy. Um, and, and, I've only focused up until now on the way that rivers appear in the text, but he also includes astronomical tables and charts. He spends a lot of time thinking about calendars and the agricultural calendar. There's a fascinating part, and this I I did include in my current um, chapter discussing him. There's a fascinating part where he lays out the days of January and prognosticates almost like an american um, farmer's al- old farmers almanac says well if the calends of january is on a tuesday then then this is the weather to expect for the winter and so there's just all of these ways in which the Awareness and engagement of medieval monks, not only with the intellectual knowledge of Isidore of Seville, for example, but also with the practical knowledge and folk knowledge, potentially even of the people surrounding them.
0: Book knowledge and other kinds of knowledge, and, they, and how they and how they, how they how they meet together. Yeah,
1: and local book knowledge. He is very interested in the history of Saint-Bartain and Saint-Omer and of Flanders, but then also the way that he connects the place he lives in to the other places of Europe and the world. And I think that's really interesting as well. Um, And I know that the map that is the image for this podcast, (laughs) actually it comes from uh, Lambert's manuscript. And I'm curious why you chose it to <laughs> stand in for this complex 11th century
0: i feel i'm being interviewed now and uh, the tables are turned um but i mean the short answer to that is um is there are not many maps of europe actually uh, until really usually much much later uh in the in the indeed, uh, early modern period so lambert's map has been described as the first map of europe i mean it, it is in a way a a zoomed in section of a world map okay so the world maps as you ever noticed so kind of divided in different uh, the, the various uh, three parts of the of the world according to the classical tradition of land that I was working with europe asia and africa this europe map he zoomed in on onto <clears throat> the bit of europe so in a sense it's it's not a self standing map but nonetheless it's also interestingly very inclusive because it um, includes um, spain um, including al um Although at this point it was Muslim, but for Lambert, it's still part of Europe and actually also goes through into, in, into East, Eastern Europe too. So it is a very convenient image for this podcast, even though it's a little bit late, because as you <laughs> said, he kind of writes it in 1110, uh, I think the map is often today to 1118. Um, but I'm arguing it's on the basis of the intellectual baggage of 11th century, is my stretch.
1: But. No, absolutely. And that's how I actually included it in my forthcoming book is that which which really kind of stops around the year 1000 for the most part but what Lambert is doing is he's living in this pivotal crossroads moment of change and he's trying to figure out what the future might hold. His book is full of prognostication, including, brief aside, this amazing dice game based on um, biblical sayings where um, you would roll dice and then follow a prognostication table. That is one of the first things I want to do with my new potential project on Lambert is I want to translate that and make it a digital game that can be played.
0: (laughs) Move over, Wordle. Move over, Wordle.
1: (laughs) But so he's really interested in the future. But to figure out the path of the future, he is so deeply immersed in the 11th century and the 9th century and the 6th century. And this is what so much medieval encyclopedism does, including Isidore way back when. (laughs) And he uses Isidore, he uses Bede, he uses Nennius, he uses Gregory of Tours. He engages with the writings of the people of the past to try to find the roadmap for what God plans for the future. He has a bestiary, he has a lapidarium, he has an herbarium. And in the same ways that those, especially by the Central Middle Ages, those bestiaries are seen as God leaving clues for an animal's leaving clues for the coming of Christ, that he is so interested in what happened in the 11th century, because that's how he's going to figure out the future
0: people are getting the impression i hope this to why this is such a, a fascinating book because it's moving around time as you've said from future back to the 6th century and his 11th century kind of um yeah kind of uh, temporal mobility but also spatially as well he's also interested in different in 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 the area around him in that map actually cologne is one of the few places which is marked out which is quite close to um where he lives but it's a yeah he takes a global view i mean, it's. it's uh, There is a map of Europe, but there's also a map
1: of the world. I was just going to say one thing that you said earlier about the map, it being zoomed in. I think that's one of the other things that's really fascinating about the worldview Lambert's constructing, is he not only moves around the world and is inclusive of, of a lot of places, but he zooms in and out pretty radically. There are entire discussions about the working of the stars in the universe and maps and charts and tables and constellations including images. They're very fun. But then he'll zoom in and focus on something very minor and small and then zoom back out again. And it's dizzying. And it's part of why people have had a hard time wrestling with the book as a whole is that he zooms in and out and moves around and doesn't give us a lot of clues as to why.
0: He, he doesn't make it an easy he doesn't make it easy for us right as, he kind of, as we're as we're whirled around this kind of his this cosmos I guess Lambert's cosmos which expands in, in time as well as space I did want to come back actually to that point you made and as you say he's writing at the cusp of the twelfth um, century um, should we say very 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 late the long eleventh century as some people might say um, more broadly do you think I mean, how far can we extrapolate from what he says about nature, as in he's an individual, it's a very individual book, can we draw wider conclusions about changes in perception of nature on, on the basis of this? Or is that, is that or is it just one, one person's project?
1: That is always so hard. That's one of the things that especially pre-modern environmental historians wrestle with is how to pin down a change over time narrative. When our voices are, and not only our medieval voices, but also the hard climatological data is often site-specific, is fragmentary, is dependent. Even our archaeological data is, right, is dependent on when someone got money to go dig something and and what they were able to pay to measure. It is all... A mosaic, it's all individual fragments of information, and it can be interpreted in different ways and in fact, one of the one of the ways that I kind of imagine the Libra Floridos is as a mosaic that is a a bigger picture that is put together from all of these tiny little parts that he has assembled very carefully, but that also is inherently and by its nature fragmentary. And environmental knowledge is that from the medieval world. And so perceptions of nature come at us one at a time, always, through hagiography, through chronicles, but then cumulatively, they add up to an understanding of the working of the world. With Lambert, it's going to be tricky to keep pursuing this question because he's a real person living in a real place. And I think that, that as much attention as we give to him as author and, and potentially as, as, as thinker and planner, he's a real human who lives in a place. And again, a little like mosaics that are often, except for the very expensive tiles, made from the local landscape he's a person who's pulling in very expensive outside information and knowledge. It's hard for him to get sometimes. But then he's compiling this out of his own life in a place surrounded by other people and surrounded by environments. And so I don't know if we can draw larger conclusions, but we can definitely create an image.
0: Yeah, and in some ways, so, I mean, I, from what you are saying, it sounds like you know we, we need to be careful, I guess, not to subordinate this. I mean, he's created this this uh, he created this amazing artifact, which 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 you're, which you've been, been talking about, and we should study it in its own right, right, as well as part of being part of some grand narrative about, you the, the taming of nature, kind of, kind of. Yeah.
1: yeah, and you know, it's also interesting too to even think of the artifact. Uh, the artifact itself is a product of late 11th, early 12th century Saint-Omer. It's made of the sheep <laughs> or the cows who are grown there. Like It's all of these manuscripts have all of these different layers of environmental engagement and I, what I hope to do in coming years with this book, with this manuscript is to make some of that connection he has to the place around him. And the place around him is sometimes very small. It's his monastery. (laughs) But then also the place around him is Flanders and the river system that he works in and the agricultural system that he relies on to be able to live this life of a religious canon and write on parchment and just kind of bring the world that he lived in a little more clearly into focus in addition to all of the amazing work that's been done on him as an intellect in him as an inheritor of
0: textual traditions, a life lived in a landscape kind of kind of yeah. yes, and yeah. a
1: book written in a place,
0: yeah. Um, this brings me actually very nicely, Alan, to the next question. I mean, just moving away from Lambert briefly. We all write books in places and your place has changed, right? Because you <laughs> yes. have been in Ohio and now you're in Stavanger in, in Norway. This podcast I'm interested in kind of getting voices from people across different parts of the world. Um, a bit a bit like a bit like a modern-day Lambert, perhaps in some ways, a mosaic being created. What's it been like for you, Alan? I mean, I don't know, from a kind of intellectual perspective, I guess, to have moved across the world. Well, I'm still trying to work that out. I moved in August
1: uh, of this year, and I moved in a point of global pandemic. Interestingly, it has definitely altered the way that the whole pandemic has altered the way that I teach about disease and history. I've yet to fully, I think, have an answer to how the move has has shaped me. I know that one clear difference is that I can now much more fully imagine more interdisciplinary and international collaborations done more easily moving in, moving away from a a small teaching focused institution which I loved but moving into a situation where I'm going to have more ability to more easily do collaborative work with other scholars in Europe has me very excited and has me daydreaming about things like all of the potential things that could be done with Lambert and the potential combination of expertise and voices that could be pulled Mm -hmm. in. One distinct thing, though, about a week ago from when we're talking now, Stavanger had its largest windstorm in easily a decade. And I am incredibly lucky we found a rental house that has a view of one of the one of the fjords of Stavanger the Håfsfjord where the battle that unified Norway the battle of Håfsfjord took place and as this windstorm is sweeping in The lashing rain and watching the fjord turn, and this is as a water historian, this is fascinating because you get these descriptions in medieval hagiography of the, the suddenness with which a calm river or a calm inlet becomes a violent place. Watching this fjord turn into a place with white caps and lashing waves hitting the shore and going up on the sidewalk even... And imagining being in a Viking longboat, out in this harbor, trying to make it back into 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 shelter. It is yet another reminder of how what I what I'm thinking we can do with Lambert is part of what we do, is that the places we're in shape the way that we perceive the way that people experience nature in the past.
0: Historians often tend to privilege time over space, but as as you know, as, as kind of disciplinary. Side effects, I guess, but yeah, space always matters, right? It's not, yes, not not just in geography, but for, his, yeah. but for historians too. So we've been talking about Lambert. Is this what you're? So this is what you're currently working on? I mean, what what are you? What are you currently? Working?
1: I have too many irons in the fire. <laughs> Lambert is a bit of my moving into this new research position pipe dream. Um, I really have always loved teaching with his images and using him as an example in the classroom with my Rivers book that I've just finished, he becomes a big part of the final conversation about memory and the memory of place and the repetition of storytelling. And it got me a little hooked. And so now I kind of want to keep poking at Lambert in small doses, but my next step is actually a world history of water. So I have, I have an environmental water history project underway as well. So trying to kind of keep both of those um, intellectual pursuits going. A lot of juggling, but yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> yes.
0: but, well, thank you, Rajan, for sparing the time. It's been really great to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much. It was, this was incredibly fun, and I really enjoy listening to the other episodes. So.